Hey, welcome today. We've got Will Barfield to kick off our meeting with Dr. With the good Dr. Vicky, and uh, we're going to talk about why inclusion matters today. And uh, I think Will, you're really active in that space, and, and a, a number of people are very inclusive-minded folks who hire and influence hiring on this call. And and Will, I wanted you to kick off the call today because you're a great, not just a guest, but a great friend. Daisy's here, who's in staffing. You're in recruiting and staffing and consulting. Will, take it away, and then we're going to get to Dr. Vicky. Thank you for the invitation, John. Always enjoy uh, joining your crew here and having an opportunity to speak and certainly appreciate the connections that you've made. There are people on the screen who I've connected with directly and talked to, and there are others who I you know, expect that I will you know, engage in the future. So, hi, uh, I'm Will Barfield. I am the owner of Barfield Revenue Consulting. It is a local woman-owned business that my wife and I have together. Um, and I've been in the recruiting industry for 19 years, business development overall for 25, and then have been uh, the president and CEO of this company along with my wife. We're in our seventh year in business. Um, we focus primarily on helping our clients hire people who impact and drive revenue, sales, marketing, business development, revenue operations, entry level through leadership, we place revenue drivers. Our primary client base tends to be one to 500 employee size companies. So the types of things that you find in downtown Raleigh, downtown Durham, Research Triangle Park, right? Med tech, biotech, life sciences, uh, software, IT, uh, telecommunications. We are doing that kind of work here with accelerating growth companies that maybe just the founder just raised some angel money or venture capital, private equity. They're going IPO. They're being acquired. There's a leadership change or a reorg. Something's happening, some dynamic moment. And we're brought in for one or more revenue-related hires. Have done that long enough locally. We've gotten to know a lot of founders, CEOs, venture capital, and private equity. So we have been able to get spread all across the country organically through referral. So we are fully national. We cover all four domestic U.S. time zones, all levels of position up to C-suite. And we've also done some project work in Canada, LATAM, the UK, and Europe. So that's the business in a nutshell of what I do. I am business development for the business as well as delivery on director-level recruiting and above uh, in terms of leadership and management. And then when we bring in positions that are more individual contributor or other parts of the org, I have recruiters that I will sub that work out to and bring in partners to help with projects uh, that's kind of our model. John likes to refer people to me and to have me on these calls because I've been in the recruiting industry for 20 years and I work with so many other recruiters, at, you know, locally and across uh, the U.S. that I've got, you know, tend to have pretty solid perspective on what's happening in the job market and what's going on in the moment. And I know that those things are pertinent as it relates to many of John's clients and where they are in their you know, career transitions. John, I'm gonna kick this over to you and say, do you have any questions for me or are there anything in particular that you want me to touch on that I'm seeing in the market as it relates to you know, hiring or you know, yeah, resumes just, or anything that's really, really important to your crew here? I think just a, just a quick sense of the market and also how do we, 
Daisy's on the call too. I want you to put in your contact information before we get to Dr. Vicki, so that if you have follow-up questions for Will, this isn't the whole show. We're getting to why inclusion matters with Dr. Vicki in just a moment. But Will will have his contact information there. Everyone should at least send a, you know, I'd like you to say how you'd like to receive resume, but uh and and to have a discussion. But yeah, tell us about what you're seeing in the market job job-wise and and the outlook. Uh, versus the macro headlines, and then we're going to turn straight to Dr. Vicky. Uh, sounds great. Thank you. Uh, and Daisy, I'm sure, will probably be nodding, uh, even though I can't see her uh, while I'm yeah. talking through this. But what I would say in terms of the market, now I've been in this long enough to see many cycles, right? So I got into this industry when we were coming out of dot-com in 9-11 and was part of that upcycle, great recession, that upcycle afterwards, COVID shutdown, that upcycle. And now the market that we're in right now. And um, I'm just going to be honest. I'm not going to mince words. It's not good. We are not in a healthy job market. Uh, what are the dynamics driving that? We were in the most candidate-friendly job market of our lifetime from Q1 of 21 through Q2 of 22. That was the best time ever to shop. The demand supply issue was so out of whack. Coming out of 20. And I could take over the whole call and run hours on you know, the, the dynamics that led to that. But ultimately, that window has closed. Last year, towards the end of Q2 and certainly into Q3, inflation, recession, the, the, those things sucked the wind out of the market, certainly stuck the wind out of the stock market. Stock market falls. Companies who overhired and overspent on those hires during that window of gluttony had to market correct. They start laying off. Layoffs create fear. Companies start freezing hiring, pulling back budgets, right? Seen this before. Now, though, the layoffs, in my opinion, this is my opinion, the layoffs are no longer about, oh my gosh, you know, we got to make some uh, critical business decision. Now it's like, hey, everybody's laying off. We can do that too. It's going to help our PL and it's not not going to make a big splash or create a lot of noise because everybody's doing it. And so I'm seeing a lot of layoff stuff happening now that's really bottom line driven as opposed to, oh my gosh, like, you know, we're, we're inside out on our valuation. Um, what that means in the job market is a lot of people flushing into it, really a ton of noise, a lot of traffic, a lot of spraying and praying with online job applications and response rates down from companies. Uh, and what we don't know when these jobs are posted are, are they even real? A lot of them are frozen. They're still gathering resumes, but are they alive? And if they are, are they moving on them? Or do they just post them because they got somebody internal that they plan to put in that position a couple of months, but they are obligated to look at outside candidates? It's really hard to win that war right now if you're on the outside and you're, you're lobbing apps. So I'm sure that you have talked uh, you know, ad nauseum, John, about the power of networking and the and how critical it is at any moment in time, but certainly in this job market, which is not in anyone's favor on the screen, to use your network and your leverage to get introductions at, at into companies and try and get forward momentum from a known quantity or a resource that can help you get traction. That is number one, two, and three tactic, win, play, show, whole race is over. Online applications is, in my opinion, 
that's akin to stopping at Circle K on the way home, getting a scratch-off ticket, and that's your retirement plan. <laughs> it is not going to work. Um, and just being honest, mm -hmm. as it relates to inclusion, and I'm, I'm thrilled that that is the, the content of the show here, look, that inclusion is also a big part of what's going on in the, in the recruiting industry right now. I'm being asked by clients, John, Daisy, I'm sure you are too, you know, be thoughtful about diversity with your candidate pool, Will. You know, we or we really need this to be a diverse hire. Or, you know, what is it that we can do to be appealing from an inclusion standpoint as a company to help draw the right employees? So I'm glad that Dr. Vicky's going to hit on that today because it is impacting my work significantly too. What that means to the applicant pool is, you know, diverse candidates have leverage. It is important for, and that doesn't mean necessarily race or gender or sexual orientation or any of those things. It can also mean age. I'm being asked to make sure I present diverse candidate pools of varying age groups because companies have a, a you know, a goal to hire in a diverse capacity, even as it means different generations in the workforce. So certainly listen to what Vicky has to say. Uh, I've promised you I'd try and wrap up by 11.15. John, I'm doing well on time, uh, but hopefully that was some valuable information. That's You're good. welcome to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Yeah. And then, uh, Will, if you don't mind putting your contact information and Daisy, yours too, in there. I know Ted's put the meeting in there. That's awesome. We're going to get right to Dr. Vicky. Perfect transition. I mean, it's good news, bad news. You're in good shape if you're on this call because even more on how you can be more appealing in your applications and and with these companies. And we've got some very strong voices on this call. And we're going to turn right to our featured. Thank you, Will. We'll be talking to you really soon and hope everyone follows up with you who hasn't. Thank you so much. Stick around if you can for a minute. But if not, I appreciate you a lot, my friend. Dr. Johnson. Dr. Vicki Johnson-Lawrence is here with Why Inclusion Matters. I can't tell you what a great friend of the business she is, but she is. And I will tell you that she has helped many people on the side. We've always kind of dreamed of a little bit of an ecosystem where our clients and our friends come back and share their knowledge once they're employed. And, and she's part of that dream, too. And she's she's helped, you know, from my brother, my own family, uh, uh, who who we've helped to, to other clients to kind of just tweak their language and be just more conscientious about some issues that are in the workplace that we'll um, perfectly talked about here today. But I present to you one of our great friends, a consultant and an RTI professional, Dr. Vicki. Good morning, everybody. Uh, it is really exciting to be back in this space. Uh, I came to John in 2020. And I was in a similar seat as many of you trying to identify that next step forward, identifying what the right next fit was for me. Uh, what that dude said is depressing. What do you? So identifying the right next step for me was pivotal in the middle of the market that Will was describing uh, in 2021. I was one of those people looking, saying, well, who's doing the things that fit with the values I hold? Who's doing the work? that will support equity and inclusion in a broader scale. And for that, that for me, <clears throat> that really meant paying attention to who was in the job pool. It meant understanding that the organization I was about to enter or going to work for was being intentional to not exclude other people. And those two things alone continue to propel me to do this work in inclusion. 
So I've been doing inclusion and equity-based consulting since 2003. So I'm at 20 years now, 2000 or 2023 really marks, I guess in my mind, a long time of being at this work well before it was something that we saw all over the news or something that we saw popping up um, on a daily basis. And in doing this work over that time, a lot of it early on was very data-driven, meaning I was working with people to ensure that the data or the information they were presenting was really rooted in being inclusive or more importantly, not being exclusive. And as I go through this presentation today, I only have 10 slides, mainly because I would love to hear conversation about what this information means for you and be able to address questions or thoughts about how this makes sense in our current um, uh, current job market, but also in the current workplace, knowing that large and small organizations see these topics very differently, knowing that across the country and really globally, there are different interpretations of all of these words. I'll provide some definitions and ask for your contributions to the conversation. I am really interested in thinking about how this makes sense for people entering a new workspace. And I'm hoping that at the end of this talk, you take away something that you can actually use as you decide what sort of organization you wanna be in and what sort of organization you want to contribute to. Uh, I think both of those are very critical. They're not always discussed, although much more common now than ever before. Um, they are not always discussed, particularly from the perspective of the person looking for a place to go. And I will also say organizations have been doing all sorts of work over the past few years, very much fueled by some of the um, controversies all across the United States. Sometimes that information can live at a surface level. It's not in my life, i.e. it doesn't affect me today, which means I may not be connecting with it on a personal level. Part of this conversation, I hope today, is an invitation to consider ways in which it might matter to you and ways in which you want to make sure the place you go or the workplace you're in or moving to can be better. So feel free to jump in at any point. Um, just a little more about me. I have been in higher ed for some time. I went to University of Michigan. Actually, I'm from North Carolina. I'm from Durham. So I am local, went to Michigan and I was at University of Michigan first, then switched over to Michigan State. So I do have all the different colors in my closet. I do have no allegiance to anybody in Michigan at all. I'm a Tar Heel. And as I've come back south, come back into the um, Durham area, it's just been very exciting to see how our communities have changed. And they are very much influenced by some of these thoughts that I'm going to share today. So I thought it would be helpful to start with the point about why inclusion matters in our culture. And I want to emphasize at the top of the screen, I have these three arrows because I wanted to differentiate diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging as contributors to opportunity in our workplace. A lot of times when we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, it gets lumped into one item, one product, one concept. And I'm here to say, that's not true. They are each their own and they have different contributions. You probably, <clears throat> at least in the most recent years, you've probably heard or seen something about inclusion training or diversity training or equity training and seen a lot of organizations implement training programs, but 
at the same time, we've seen a number of articles come out in these business magazines, business journals, the scientific literature showing that training doesn't do anything for improving diversity, equity, and inclusion without additional steps. It's not enough just to go sit in a training class because that's not the point. We're all smart people. We can all go find information. Finding the information is hardly the problem. Knowing what to do with it after you have it is really the critical piece to making a difference. And when I say making a difference, I mean the differences that you that are pointed here or pointed to here in figure two. This figure comes from a Deloitte report uh, in 2018. The report was from 2018, but the uh, data are based on information collected in 2016. And their point is organizations with inclusive cultures are twice as likely to meet or exceed financial targets, three times as likely to be high performing, six times more likely to be innovative, sorry, innovative and agile, and eight times more likely to achieve better business outcomes. The business case has been made time and again for why we care about inclusive cultures. However, inclusive cultures really seems more like a buzzword when I see it written in reports in this way, instead of being meaty content that you can grab onto and say, I can do that. The question is, what can you do? How do you make this inclusive culture and what exactly goes into it? In a moment, I'll give you some additional definitions, but from the perception of members of the workforce, inclusion still matters because it lets people, it lets employees, staff members be authentic, be in a place where they can feel comfortable being themselves, leverage their strengths, share their perspectives, and look to others to do the same. They can be flexible. Choosing when and where the work gets done is beneficial to the employee. And then it allows many employees or many employees have reported, feeling like they have a purpose that they can share in the workplace. They know how their work fits in. And I want to say that none of these are new. None of these are new ideas, new concepts. But in the space of inclusion, we don't always see organizations intentionally work to make spaces where these are attributes that they hold in high esteem. Sometimes orgs have these. More often now, we see them at least saying them in their job descriptions or saying them, I won't say job descriptions, they'll say them in their values and their mission statements and their blog releases and posts about their organization and why it's so great. But what are they actually doing to make this the environment that you were trying to go to? What are they doing to ensure that you can be authentic? What are they doing to make sure flexibility isn't just a word, but is instead a reality? How do you get to demonstrate that you are part of the purpose of the organization through your own personal work? Now, I think everything that I've said so far is probably something you can agree with or um, can agree is valuable in some way. But for everything that I've just said, there are plenty of people who disagree or they agree in idea, they agree in concept, but they do not agree when it comes to thinking about what that turns into in the workplace. McKinsey pulled together some nice graphics. They have a whole, these, the big four um, accounting firms, they put a lot of energy into equity and inclusion assessments because they know that diverse teams are innovative, successful, and are driving better business. <clears throat> because of that, they put together really nice figures like the one on the screen to demonstrate where the issues lie. Even though we're okay. And I, by we, I mean broadly the workforce, even though we are okay with having a diverse environment, 
we are not as okay with making sure everybody feels included and counted equally in those spaces. So the figure is showing the boxes that are, um, there are rectangles around the two boxes that really get at this uh, sentiment. 52% had of the persons in this survey, they were looking at leaders um, in, no, this one isn't about leaders. Previous slide, previous results um, were reflecting opinions of leaders. This is based on Glassdoor and Indeed user gener generated reviews. 52% of the users were okay with diversity. Okay, talking about it. Okay, seeing it in the workplace. Okay, having it become a key value of the organizations where they were working. But when we look on the right-hand side and it talks about, or, and it points to inclusion, only 29% of people had a positive sentiment about inclusion. 18% had a positive sentiment about equality. That suggests we have a disconnect between being okay with people around us who are looking different versus including people around us who may be different in some way. This means there's still work to do. Everybody who comes to work wants to, I won't say they're all looking, nobody's necessarily looking for a great time at work, but it is nice when you have it. So what can we do to make sure that there's a higher chance of being in a workplace that has it than a higher chance of being in a workplace where you feel like you're ousted? And so with that, I thought sharing some definitions, some interpretations of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging would be helpful for making sure we're talking about the same thing. When we're talking about inclusion initiatives, there's a component that's intending to talk about diversity. So we'll made a point to address diversity, but the different dimensions of diversity are as critical to consider as it is to think about what's common in the news, i.e. race and gender and sexuality. So the item on the right, the concentric circles on the right, present a variety of spaces in which diversity might matter. So there are primary characteristics really meant to reflect things about one's um, person, one's actual physical person. And then there are secondary organizational and cultural features that can uh, offer or influence diversity. The point here is when we talk about diversity, it's never just race. It's never the basics that always show up on the news. It's so many more things than that. And everyone can typically think of the person in their lives who would have benefited had their workplace had a policy in place or practices in order that did not exclude them. It may be you, it may be someone close to you, but typically we're aware of someone who has been sidetracked because they've been excluded in some way. The reference to the uh, article on the left about why diverse teams outperform homogenous teams, I'm putting it here to say, lots of resources exist that talk about how these teams or the benefits of these teams uh, for the workplace, for projects, for innovation. I don't wanna dig into several of them because yeah, I, I think many of you already know this, but should you decide that you're interested in investigating, Psychology Today has many, as does Forbes, as does Inc. Uh, there are a number of resources that discuss the wins associated with diversity. <clears throat> I 
Now, I also want to say, when we talk about belonging and inclusion, I think a wait a minute. Yeah, we the slide was skipped. I'm sorry. When we're talking about equity as part of equity and inclusion initiatives, I want to make sure we're on the same page here. A lot of folks think equality and equity are the same. They are not. Equality is when we all have to hop off the sidewalk on the left. Equity is when everybody can get from the sidewalk to the street. They are not the same. Equity is about removing the barriers or circumstances that stand in the way. Uh, sorry. Equity is about ensuring that we overcome or we create strategies that overcome these barriers, but we do it in a systematic way. So instead of saying that the person in the wheelchair on the left should figure it out and that they should do something on their own to make this better, is being systematic and intentional at a higher level of engagement, at a higher level of infrastructure to make it accessible for everyone. And when I look at this image, just know that there have been many of these images before. There are some around a baseball field. There are some with apples on a tree. There are some and a ladder. And then there are some with boxes stacked and people in trenches effectively. And there have been critiques of every single one of these because we there isn't one set way that disadvantage and inequality shows up. There are many. So as you look at this image or look at this pair of images, my challenge to you is to think about the various ways that equity is showing, excuse me, showing up. So a couple that I would point to, on the right, they have the horns that are sounding for the persons to cross the street. It's not just figuring it out on your own. They have a ramp there. It's not just getting down on the curb. The young girl in the front, she's leading them walking across, not in the middle. There are different intentions when you look at figures like this. And I suggest that when we think about the workplace, it's also important to think about the nuance. It's not just about the big thing that the curb is um, graded and not just a drop. There are many of the little pieces that are just as well, um, just as necessary to consider that sometimes it's easy to overlook. <clears throat> And then when it comes to belonging and inclusion, um, folks often think if you have diversity and equity, then you've made it. So you having a having a diverse pool, yes, that's great. But is it enough? No. Having equity in your space, is it enough? No. Just because people get to be in the space, it doesn't mean that they feel like they are welcome and able to engage in the space. And that's what all these circles here are meant to reflect. So exclusion. <coughs> excuse me, exclusion is the circle on the top left. You have people looking in from the outside. You have all the colored dots, the different multicolored dots looking in on the circle of blue dots. Then we go to segregation. So this is when you created a resource that is parallel, but still separate. That's not fun. That's not necessarily better. Then you have integration. So now you have the small circle of multicolors inside a larger circle, but they are still not mingling. They are still not engaged. They are still not connected. So the next step from integration is inclusion. So now we're at least all in the same space, but that doesn't mean we're happy to be in the same space together. So this is why belonging has joined the conversation so often. It is not just being together. It's not just being allowed to have the same resources, 
but maybe it's a little bit about feeling like you can connect with the people around you in addition to just being present. Being there isn't enough. And this is often a goal for many organizations because it's hard to get to this point. It's really hard work. I'm not sure if any of you have been um, engaged in diversity initiatives in your workplaces, but I assure you, the way that it looks is number one, tailored to every organization, but number two, really hard work because it requires people oftentimes to change the way that they have been doing things for years in the past. It requires creating space for others when it's not clear what the benefit will be to you directly for making that space for others. And so this is where I'm, those were the key pieces of information I wanted you to have. And hopefully at this point, we move more into a conversation about how these sorts of um, ideas really fit into the workplace and maybe what they even mean in terms of benefit to you. So I always advocate for effective and well-designed initiatives because that's what supports a workplace that you want to be in. That's what supports a place where you feel like you can contribute. Um, it is a balancing act of navigating the things that we have always done and doing less of that and then considering other ways that these same sorts of initiatives or goals can be reached and doing so successfully. Let me add that many businesses talk about innovation, like it's such a buzzword in every workplace I've been in. Um, we think innovation is critical. We want to know how we can build our revenue. We want to know how we can build business, how we reach new audiences, how we connect with new potential clients. And oftentimes it's a, it's a complementary perspective that will help us move in that direction. And we have to make space for those complementary perspectives to be in the, in the room. They have to be uh, part of the discussions. And I'm watching workplaces change as they do this. So in my consulting work, I've worked with <clears throat> a number of smaller organizations, for-profit and non-for-profit, who were interested in making sure that they can grow their um, customer base or that they can grow their partnership lists. And they're finding that saying things the same way they've been saying them is not the win. Or maybe they're finding that the people who they may have gone to for funding, philanthropists or fundraising initiatives have had to, ch <clears throat> have had to change and they've needed new voices to help them understand what those changes needed to look like. My point is, in order to be effective, they had to listen to someone new, someone different, and be willing to hear something that they hadn't heard before. And those are the key spaces where inclusion matters. All right, so I'm curious now. And I, I would like to have this, I really don't need the slides up at this point. I think it more, it can shift at this point to a um, conversation. But if you're in that space and you're wondering about whether your workplace is inclusive or how you can identify the features that are common to an inclusive workplace, here are a few questions that you can consider. The first is, can you afford to take this position? The word afford is a curious word because many people often think of the financial cost, but the opportunity cost can often be quite high. Just because you can financially afford to be in that space does not mean it is a place that you will succeed or that you can stay long term. Uh, are there clear promotion guidelines? They don't often tell you that when you interview. 
And sometimes you can ask and it will be murky and it will say it's dependent on your performance. And then you have no idea what performance looks like or how it's defined. And even there are times where performance upon hire is not the same as performance after you've been there for a year. These are indicators of whether the workplace is ensuring that everybody can succeed or just the few who know the rules on the inside. Is isolation common? Are people who you get the chance to talk to, are they telling you that they are able to connect with others or are they describing the workplace as independent? Are they saying that you have to be a go-getter on your own or are they saying that there are opportunities to build from others, learn from others? Sometimes it means nothing, but for others, especially if you feel like you're in a um, marginalized group, isolation doesn't help you succeed. Isolation leaves you knowing what you knew when you came. That doesn't help you become a better performer. Uh, are there chains of command? So everybody, every org has some type of reporting structure, but are they structured in such a way that you don't get to ask questions if one person isn't getting or providing information that you can use? There's more to say there, but I'm moving forward. Um, you can pay attention to the wording that people use, that the organizations use. So the word boss has a long history in the United States. Consider whether it's really the history or the setting that you want to hear perpetuated on a daily basis. Supervisors and leaders oftentimes behave, <clears throat> behave in ways that will show you whether they are watching you as you flail or are or if you are in a space where they are leading and showing you how to do the work in a collaborative way, or at least in a, uh, a, in a way that will improve your performance. If not, I think you have questions to ask. And then the last is about using non-offensive language. If you hear in the interview and you're hearing it in general conversation, it might be something to pay attention to. One of the spaces that shows up a lot right now is with violent language. So. When we say things like bullet points, bullets have a violence connotation. When we say phrases like soldiering on, again, a violence connotation. There are phrases that can be concerning for people who have been on the outskirts, who have been marginalized that sometimes we don't think about because we haven't been in the seat to be affected by it. I'm suggesting that those are all areas where attention should be um, given not to say that the place isn't one looking to improve, but if it's the trend, if it's the norm, then you need to be really attentive to what type of workplace you're entering and whether there's an intentional effort for it to be inclusive or if it just seems like it's superficial for the purposes of getting more people in or looking a particular way or being performative. Should we go to questions? We are going to questions. That's awesome. This is great stuff. Thank you so much. Uh, Dr. Vicki, you come and talking about that bullet points and things like that. You come from a military family, too, don't you? I do. <laughs> was in the, he was in the Army and is interestingly never heard him use these words. <laughs> He's been trained well. <laughs> what are, you that. know, I, I think I'd, I'd love to hear from the group. I know people have questions and I don't want to dominate that. But one of the things we talked about and on our podcast, thank you for that as well. Now uh, that we record, I think y'all get some good stuff out of that as well uh, about language on interviews and some more, I will not say the phrase that you just say, but some more items on that list that you think are pretty 
if we're, if our hearts to be more inclusive and, and to sound like that in interviews, but maybe this is some of the first trainings that we have, how do we at all levels, you know, what are a couple other points that you might make that you feel like be sensitive to this kind of language, just go, go on with that a little bit, because you're always so thoughtful about bringing up like very practical issues about business and revenue and the bottom line. And, and also quite frankly, how we are able to speak and hopefully get ourselves into position to win if we do want that job. I'd say other places. Uh, well, maybe let me ask a clarifying question. From the point of the applicant? Yeah, I think us on interviews, how do we make sure that our language and and just if our hearts to be inclusive and to sound that way, what are a couple other points you would make that are maybe easy fails? And I'm sure there are others on this call that could make those points, but I'd love to hear from you just that, or because I think some of this, the way we talk and the way we sound, even if our heart's in the right place, if we don't sound that way, it might, you know, get us knocked out when we don't need to be knocked out of an interview. Right. Uh, I would say some of the key things to avoid, key words or phrasing to avoid, are the spaces where you are the least comfortable with word choice. So one of the ways that I see this show up in my current workplace, it's not intentional, it hardly ever is, but the pronouns that people prefer to use. If you are in a space and you are unsure or uncomfortable about the pronoun use, use the person's name. That's it. Like this is an easy one to mistakenly show up in a way that you did not intend. Using a person's name is the clearest and cleanest way to respect whatever form of inclusion um, or to I say it differently, to ensure that you are not in unintentionally excluding them or disrespecting them in the interview space. I have seen this happen. It was not intentional. Oftentimes people are um, putting their pronouns, especially over Zoom, they put their pronouns after their name or as part of their name. So I don't have it in mind today, not here, but oftentimes mine reads Vicki Johnson Lawrence parentheses, she slash her. This is an easy way to make sure that you are referencing people as they want to be referenced. Um, by far, it's the biggest one that I see as a concern. Another is making assumptions or avoid making assumptions about how people feel about race or gender or any of the isms that lead one to feel left out. I would, especially in the space of an interview, avoid covering any of those spaces where it seems like you may be offending someone. And I realize these things sound like they may be um, just general knowledge, but they aren't. They aren't because what we have in the past viewed as being offensive is not the same as what is currently offensive and will knock you out of a candidate pool really quickly. Um, other things that you can do though, that reflect some sensitivity or some awareness of inclusion-related concerns is exp um, explaining situations in the past where you have been intentional with listening to other people's perspectives, where you have been intentional to invite different perspectives into the room. Let me also say, with the caveat, this does not mean saying 
that you've invited people who look a certain way into the room. This does not mean saying things like, well, yeah, I made sure the older people were there so that, that we understood what they were concerned about. Don't do that. <laughs> Definitely don't do that. But instead, you can say you're ensuring that people with experience in such and such areas are included in the conversation. Instead, you are saying you're making sure you understand the perspectives of such and such community by asking such and such who said it was about this for that community. In other words, don't make up stuff. Don't make up things. Don't suggest that you have created or had conversations with folks for some elusive reason. In other words, don't say you talk to a Black person to find out what Black people think. Don't do that. Don't say you talk to a woman so you know what women think. Don't do that. <laughs> Just don't. But instead, you can say, I asked, and this is, a this is the type of feedback that I got specifically for addressing this topic with women. You, there are ways to say that I'm being intentional about inclusion and engagement without saying, I asked one person, therefore they represent all. Don't do that. How would you, I think that's such a great point. How would you talk about a, an example where you did bring different people and perspectives in a very inclusive way together to solve a business problem without sort of jumping over those things? That that probably takes some practice, but um, just yeah. my last question, then I want to open it up to anyone else. I would think about this in the same way we think about market research. And that's to say, if there are markets you want to reach, you should identify who is in that market, who serves that market, and use that as a connecting path to figure out how your org or how your business, how your service reaches that market. In other words, it's not assuming that you know all, but creating space or saying that you've created space. You've gone to these different spaces, but you were very intentional. You were deliberate. You said you are asking on purpose and you do it in a way that doesn't presume you know everything. Where these, where these situations come into trouble is when it sounds like you were doing it to know everything. You won't, there's, I mean, there are a few things we all know everything about. But it's, I'll say, for example, when we talk about violence prevention, we would most certainly like, one of the projects I'm actually currently working on is around violence prevention and how we address violence uh, in the online setting. We know that violence affects all types of populations. It is not restricted to any one group. But if we want to know how violence affects children, then we would go to a children-serving organization and ask, how is violence affecting children in the community that you serve. Same thing is true for elder abuse. We don't assume that we know all the issues that older adults are managing. So we go to an organization like the Council on Aging and ask, how is violence affecting adults in your space? And they will tell you. But then the conversation that you're coming back with is after consulting with the Council on Aging, they told us such and such, and I suggest this or this um, innovation or this strategy and result. It's not saying I know all about older adults Therefore, I suggest this as the strategy going forward. It's a difference in giving credit to the folks who do know, the orgs who do know, versus saying that you know it all. And you are the, you may be the key connector, but don't. Um, don't play the authority. Don't play the authority. Thank you. Very good. Questions from the group or comments? Jeff? Jeff, speak up. You're on mute. 
Okay. Put that dangerous right, flag sorry. in the background. <laughs> My goodness. Go ahead. I now. put this flag up when you said you've got all the colors. So I've got the Carolina blue that you have. I don't have the navy and gold and green and white. I've got the other two triangle sets of colors here. When I was working at UNC, I had a conversation. Uh, I remember we were talking about racism and the point that I made, I have a neurobiology background, is the brain's architecture is set up to make generalizations. It's how we can cope with a very complicated world that we live in. We make generalizations. We see a few instances of things and we, see, we say, okay, in general, things that's how those things are. And racism is one instance where we don't allow for the individual we just project our general generalizations onto it. And I think what, what you're saying, you know, the, the advice that you were giving about not, not saying, you know, making generalized statements because they can offend people. It's a difficult thing to do. It takes a lot of practice to kind of counter what our brains are set up to do to try to simplify a very complicated, detailed world. But thank you for the points. Thank you. And I just want to add to that the groups that live on the outside, they have become accustomed to understanding all the nuances of the people on the inside. So as we talk about how we teach our brains to behave, just know that it's possible because those persons in the marginalized spaces, they've been forced to do it for many years before. Mode so, switching. Yeah. Time and again. So you can do it is the point. It is, it is not elusive. Right. Our brains are amazingly powerful. They can even override their hardwired circuitry yes. for dealing with complexity. It's amazing. Exactly. Paul, Paul, did you have a point or a question? Yeah, I had a, I had a point and then a question. So um, uh, first of all, thanks for coming today. I appreciate it. Um, the, uh, it's, it was interesting to me the way you describe uh, how you would suggest bringing feedback back and how you describe um, sort of that you don't know everything, but you know this thing about this from because of what you learned here. And it strikes me that that's actually a really good advice for everything that we do. I think in business, especially coming out of uh, certain um, certain types of programs, there's there's a um, uh, you're rewarded for generalizing to the point where you know everything. You're rewarded for saying the the uh, I know all of this, even if you only know eighty percent. And people say that, and that that is literally what people are expecting you to do. And you are rewarded in your career for it. But if you can kind of play in that same space and then also say, uh, and what I'm thinking about is just talking to our normal customer, you know, sort of our, our regular customer base, not trying to expand to a new customer base um, and saying, you know, I talk to these people, people want to say, I uh, know everything here. And so um, you know, I think that's good advice for all of us to not just for this particular area, just in general, usually people say things that they seem to know a lot more than they actually do. Uh, and if you can um, say things in that way, you're probably doing yourself injustice. So, um, so that's one thought. Uh, and then my next question is, uh, with so many companies going more remote, uh, how do you advise HR departments and leadership teams on these issues when they're in a fully remote workforce? And we were, I was coming from a company that was fully like 80 or 90% remote since about 2012, so a very remote space. Um, and I'm curious what additional, um, I don't know, what, what uh, advice you have for those types of uh, organizations? I think a lot of that has to do with size and with frequency of meeting with the same people. <clears throat> those seem to be two very large drivers for how well the remote setting works. So typically what I see 
is in organizations that are not new to the remote space. It's about making sure that their policies, practices, and the things that they rely on, the documents that they rely on to make decisions, that they, number one, reflect an attention to inclusive language. Because you're remote. You're, you're not getting to see people's um, body, uh, body language as much. You're not necessarily seeing much beyond what people want you to see via Zoom. It means you don't get to see them interact with others unless it's on purpose. And when that's the case, it's harder to read whether what we are giving off, our energy, our voices, our tone, our word choice, whether it's really offensive and everybody's just waiting to get off or whether it's really just fine and well-received and we're all um, collaborating as um, colleagues that work together well. That's how I'll say it. I won't say friends, but it's colleagues. What I've seen is that when we put things in writing and there is a regular sharing of practices and policies that have the language that encourage inclusive behavior, it works well. So I'll compliment this and say, it's not having side conversations or the meetings after the meetings where you exclude people who you don't want to talk to because they're just not enough like you or they don't think enough like you. It's minimizing that. It's <clears throat> ensuring that everybody's on the team's chat who's related to the project and not starting another chat with just the person who you're most comfortable with about the content of the meeting. It is creating space for everybody to engage in a way that doesn't leave someone without information. So it's actually a microaggression of sorts to leave people out of conversations and then say, good luck, hope you catch up, and then calling it an inclusive place. Happens a lot. It's not appropriate, but it's one of the defining features of a non-inclusive workplace. Um, and those are the sorts of practices and behaviors that HR teams have to be vocal about. Some are and some aren't, but it's demonstrating those to the teams throughout the organization that makes a difference. In larger organizations, a lot of the leadership tends to get training or access to training around these types of behaviors, and those are usually uh they're at least a step in the right direction. I mean, without monitoring and evaluation or regular assessment, it's just one more training. But if we move it forward, then it can work well. Sounded like, uh, Dr. Vicki, that sounded like my junior high uh, gym <clears throat> right there. A little, a little PTSD on that one. Hey, you'll catch <laughs> up. All right, Chip had a question. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Vicki. Yeah, this has been real helpful. Um, a quick statement and then a question. Um, I really liked your point about doing the research and getting informed. Um, one thing I wanted to share is something that I've learned recently is that people, when they are nervous or unprepared, their subconscious will actually get them to start explaining things. And that probably, as we all know, well, it depends on how much you've interviewed, but the, the first thing you can do in an interview is talk too much, right? And secondly, is to try to fake it till you make it. Um, and probably nothing will piss anybody else off more in a DEI discussion to be unprepared and to try to fake that, right? Um, just to build, you did make the statement earlier, but I wonder if you could build on it a little bit more, especially if somebody doesn't, you know, they know they might've done some of the intangibles with the right intentions, right? But they may not be able to flesh out the most brilliant answer. Mm -hmm. What would you recommend as the best approach for that to say, hey, look, I've been looking into this and, and I'm, you know, I'm aware um, is that probably the next best example? 
when they go into an interview? I think so. I walk carefully here because on the one hand, yes, it is helpful to demonstrate that you are growing in your awareness. However, the goal is not to say that I am terrible at this and I don't know what I'm talking about. There's a, yeah. a space in the middle. We So in the world of equity and inclusion work, the goal is never to have someone say, I was all, well, um, <laughs> there's some caveat here. The goal isn't to say, or for anyone who's acting um, without malice to say, I was terrible here and I am admitting that I'm a terrible person. That is not the goal. The goal is instead to say, I'm looking for ways to ensure that I'm not creating part of the problem. I am not being the barrier. I am not causing new problems. That is really what um, I see HR teams and employers wanting. Yes, it's of course nice to have folks who are intentionally taking steps to be inclusive, but not to overdo it. Because if you're overdoing it, it's even worse. Then it seems like you're trying to save everybody or save the people who (laughs) they don't need saving. They just need space. And I think that's true for most people. We don't need a savior. What you need is access to the same resources and understanding as the other people, other candidates in the room or in the space. So if you don't know what to say, yeah, talk less and feel free to say I'm growing in the area and I'm learning how to be better at it. But don't say it just to say it. Actually do that. Learn how to be better uh, for your colleagues. Learn how to be a better colleague to folks who may have less information than you. This might mean sharing information when you're used to keeping it close to the chest. This might mean listening when somebody else is talking about a topic that maybe you know a lot about, but maybe they need insight from someone in a senior space like you. They might need that extra moment, that extra boost, that extra conversation to make sure they're on the track, right track, especially if you already appear to be and they are trying to figure out if they need to get there. It's being willing to be maybe a little more open. I'm not saying that it's giving away all of your winning secrets to being effective in the workplace, but don't create barriers for others. And you can make up the point to say, I'm doing my very best not to make this more difficult for others. Most employers yep. like to hear that you're a team player, not in it just for you. Absolutely. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, I think even to me, just having a refresher, that's why I wanted you in so badly, because I feel like we were I'm hearing this on interviews. These questions employers are kind of posing to kind of lead you into this. Uh, who else wants to make a comment or a question as we start to wrap up here? Thank you so much, Dr. Vicky, for being here today. I think this is just opens our minds uh, and and kind of our hearts to do this. But taking, like, I call this a training today, but being involved in and, and being around or, or, you know, this information, even last week with Wendy on belonging, I think you can talk about what you're learning and have learned if you are initiating your own as a leader uh, research. We could even talk about this wonderful hour with you. You sure can. Because it's all about growing. It's not, none of us will ever be perfect. That's not how we work. That's not how people work. But, you know, figuring out how to be um, just a better colleague and being a, creating a workspace where other people get to thrive, not just you, is really valuable. And that's a wide panorama of inclusion, not just what whatever the headlines are blaring today is exactly. what we have to pay attention to. I just love that. Um, in many different ways. Any questions or comments from the group? 
quick Don't question. Don't be afraid to unmute. A quick question, Dr. Vicky. So when you're talking to folks uh, in the interview or in the discovery process, what would be good questions to ask them in order to determine, you know, how committed a company or organization is to inclusion or more importantly, to figure out where where you can where you can basically fit in? What are some good questions to ask? What is your organ organization doing to make this an inclusive workplace? So now, if you have interviewers who are prepared, they can answer that. And if you have interviewers who have never thought about it, you'll see that right away. It shows up very quickly. And if they say things like, well, we're doing trainings, I would encourage you to pause them and say, well, what have the trainings produced? Going to one more training is not the win, but what have those trainings done to change the workplace? Or how do they know about the quality of the experience of their staff? And you could ask Are that. In your networking conversations too, couldn't you? Absolutely. And you'd probably get more of a like a sense if you're not comfortable jumping into that on the interview. But I would, I mean, what a great question to ask people that have worked there and know that know that. Um. Anyway, that's great stuff. All right, I hope this was helpful. Let's give Dr. Vicky a hand. Thank you. It's gonna help all our interviews and our thought process. Uh, if someone had a question they didn't feel like they could ask on this call or they'd love to reach out to you, I know you've always been so generous with your time. I wanna respect that. But anything you need, please let us know and let me know if we can write something nice about you. If anyone wants to do that, uh, we can do anything to help your consultancy. And, and also, could people reach out to you if they had a question they just couldn't feel like they didn't have time to or it wasn't the right forum? Is that okay? Absolutely. I'm on LinkedIn. I check it multiple times every day. So you can always get me there. I did drop my link in the chat. Um, but otherwise, if you check, you can look for Vicki Johnson Lawrence on LinkedIn. I don't think there's another one of me. Um, <laughs> but, there's uh, not another one of you. Me. I can attest to that. You're one of a kind <laughs> and and very special to us and appreciate you, Sharon. Uh, and Stacy said, excellent work, Dr. Vicki. And, and, uh, I agree wholeheartedly. So anyway, let's have a wonderful day. We can be more inclusive. I feel just better when you're around. Uh, and to just give give these kings like the the kind of thought process I think we need to give to this subject and and not sort of be influenced by the just the trends, just have it kind of coming from that authentic place, which is, I think, what you really advocated. And and a, and really, it's good for business is, is to me, has always been your argument. It's good for the overall business. So, all right. Thank you so much, Dr. Vicki. And I'll have that podcast up within, well, this week or early next week, if you want to listen to some other dimensions that we got into and including some of her personal work that we talked about a little bit. So appreciate you very much. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye.